So what's your first question? Okay, how did you feel when you first saw me during our first visit after your release? How did I feel? I was surprised. I was surprised because, well, first of all, just so the listeners know who's asking me the questions, it's Rebecca, the one I always talk about in all the other recordings. And I thought it would be a good idea if you asked me the questions for this interview. Since you were the one that I was responding to on our first date. Actually, our first time we spent together outside of a visiting room in, in prison. And so, like I said, I was surprised. Welcome to Afterlife, Season 2 of Gray Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. For this entire season, we're following Gilbert Bayo, a man who found an unexpected new life after a life sentence in prison. If you're just joining us now, be sure to go back and listen to the first three episodes. In our last episode, Gilbert struggled to keep a relationship going with his young daughter Marlena, but he also found hope and meaning in a new career path as he and other prisoners took on the job of rehabilitating themselves. They achieved successes that the system had so far failed to accomplish. In the process, they created a historic movement that began to spread through California prisons. Everything changed, and I was maturing in a place designed to break you. Even as he became more skilled in his budding career as a mentor and counselor, the job, the self-help groups, and college classes all took a toll. Facing loneliness and burnout, Gilbert worried about his younger brother, Manny, who was also doing time. I, I wasn't able to talk to him over the phone because he was in prison, but we wrote to each other. And in the letters, I could tell he wasn't doing good. The narrative in his letters, it was haunting. He was getting involved with the prison lifestyle. So in these letters, basically the narrative is that he's with the business. He's participating in the prison politics. He might end up committing another crime while in prison that would give him the life sentence that he beat getting the 14-year deal, and it would be for the gang. So I'm communicating with my mom. My sister's going to visit him. She's letting me know what's going on with him, and it's not good. My sister's telling me he's, he's high. He comes to visit high. He's loaded when he calls on the phone. He's asking us to send him money here and there. And I, I'm in prison. I know what that means. So I'm like, man, he's using. I'm, you know, I'm asking my sister, what's he using? She said, I think he's using heroin. And in prison, that's the main drug in there. You know, it's pretty much heroin and meth. I could see what consistent daily use of heroin in prison, what it leads to. It's death. You know, I could see people that have been there 20, 30 years, 40 years, 
and they were using heroin and their livers going out they're getting hep c they're dying so when i'm hearing what's going on my brother that's what i'm seeing because in my head i'm thinking that's the way he's dealing with what he's going through or what he went through growing up since a baby he's not going to groups he's not getting no kind of counseling he's not letting nobody in Whatever he got going on, it's all in his head. Most people deal with it with drugs because the drugs, it erases that while you're high. The thing is you can't stay high all your life. Most people when they're getting high, they can't put that puzzle together. It's a mystery. But until you step out of that lifestyle, until you go get the help and look back, then you can understand I'm not saying that the trauma caused him to use drugs I'm not saying that it's anybody's fault I'm just describing how it works from somebody that's grew up in it and seen it it's not something people talk about especially in your own family because then you have to start looking at yourself Because Manny had kept his gang loyalties, he spent a lot of his prison time in the state's security housing units, the shoe. A shoe term is basically like living in the hole, solitary confinement, for years. I used to see that scenario playing out with my brother, like he's probably sitting in the shoe right now, solitary confinement, year after year not having the visits, not having contact. My brother was loving. You can't, you can't be like that in there. You have your homies, that's it. That, that's the love, you know? And um, we find comfort in each other, whether it's on the street, or whether you're sitting in the hole, or doing a life sentence or doing 14 years, whatever it is, it's like your family's not right there with you. All you have is each other. So you could get lost in that because that group of people are not doing things that are healthy to their mind, healthy to their body. There was a lot of wars going on in the prison system at the time and you have to participate. You might think it's impossible to take part in gangs and violence if you're locked in a cell 23 hours a day. But men there find a way, even if it means waiting for that one moment when the doors crack and you and an enemy cross paths in the hallway. This is Louis Hammonds, who spent more than a decade in the shoe before he was transferred to Soledad and began working with Gilbert. There was a lot of uh, gang members there that were very high up. Whatever knowledge they had, they were going to give me from weapons, indoctrination, what books to read, what laws to study, or, you know, to where if I was sent to a prison, if I was put in any area, it would be easy to take it over effectively. I'm going on 10 years in the shoe. You know, it's Groundhog Day. Every day is the same. 
I had men next to me that were sworn enemies that if the door cracked, I would try to kill them. It's business. And my brother was participating to the fullest. And uh, it just kept getting deeper and deeper for him. My brother paroled out of that. I'm in prison and all the information I'm getting back is my brother brought all that stuff home. The effects of the prison, it, it took a toll on him. It, it was tearing him apart. And he came home with an addiction to heroin. America's jails and prisons are flooded with contraband drugs like heroin and meth. A 2019 report to the California legislature stated that around 70% of the state's prisoners have a substance use disorder. In 2017, California's prisoner overdose death rate was three times the national average. Staff often blame friends and family for smuggling drugs in through packages and during visits. And it does happen. I've seen it in prison visiting rooms. But prison staff are likely the most responsible for getting drugs inside. During the COVID pandemic shutdown, visitors, teachers, and volunteers weren't allowed in most prisons. But in Texas, for example, the number of incarcerated people caught possessing drugs went up during that time, according to the Marshall Project. Earlier this year, a correctional officer was convicted of smuggling meth, heroin, cannabis, and cell phones into a California state prison. As the LA Times reports, quote, the State Prison Guard Union has long raised objections to vigorous screening of guards as they arrive and leave work, noting that the state would have to pay large amounts for the extra time that would add to each shift. Unfortunately, it's a common problem all over the country, and so it's not surprising that Manny came home with an addiction. Gilbert knew that isolation was the worst aspect of being in the shoe, how it could severely damage the mind. Anxiety, panic attacks, paranoia, and aggression are so common among the men housed there that some psychiatric researchers refer to the symptoms as shoe syndrome. I believe that that's where my brother started to probably have the effects of the, the trauma. After 17 years in prison, Gilbert needed to do something about his own loneliness. He had good friends inside the walls. He had respect from his peers and support from his family, but he craved something more. One thing that was missing was I was lonely. You know, I had been alone a long time. I kept going to these groups and I had got to the point where I had like almost ran out of stuff to work on, you know, like, I don't know what else to talk about. I don't know what else I'm missing. And that topic came up. Like, why haven't I tried to at least write to somebody and try to find a friend outside of prison, like, you know, a girl, and just be her friend. Like, that part is missing. I'm lonely, like there's something missing in my life. But I also don't want, like, I don't think this is a place for me to be in a relationship that I'm gonna take serious. Like, not a girl that I'm gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna settle down with her, marry her, and 
I'm, I'm looking for love in prison. That's kind of like, it might not be healthy for me either. So I, I had heard other people talking about pen pals. Most of them didn't last long or didn't last, period. They got all these studies and they're like, the relationships don't work because he's in there. You never live with him. You never live with her. You've never been in a biracial relationships. But I said, you know what? I'm going to put myself on a web page for a pen pal. I'm just not going to write what I think they want to hear. And why juvenile hall? Like there was always girls that were attracted to the lifestyle I live. I just decided to say what I was doing. I like working with kids. I'm in a school right now to get certified as a drug and alcohol counselor. And I put a picture. Getting a photo taken of yourself can be a rare thing in prison. His new prison finally allowed it on special occasions. I finally got to take a picture on the yard and like, it was pretty cool. This is almost 17 years later, but I take a picture and I post it with this bio about me. I network, I go there and say, hey, who, who knows how to do this? There's a hundred people that'll tell you every maneuver there is to get the girl in, you know? All the tricks of the trade. It was like $40 and I was like, okay, I have $40 on my books. I work, I save my money. I knew nothing. My mindset when me growing up is like, okay, well, they're in prison, they deserve it. Otherwise, why would they be in there? They're never, ever gonna change. I go to Miss Marquez, she's my boss while I'm in school. She's like, no, nah, don't do that. She's trying to talk me out of it. You've been alone, you're doing good, don't, don't mess it up. I was watching Locked Up, the TV show, one evening, and it was like midnight or one o'clock in the morning. You know what, I could write letters, I could be a pen pal. I don't know if they're even gonna write back. I paid her $40, put the picture, and I started getting mail pretty quick. I saw Gilbert, I saw his profile. Now I'm in a dorm with eight guys. We're all in the school to get certified, so we tease each other. So they come with the mail to the little dorm, and they call your name. Bayo, you know, Rosso, uh, Leva, you know. And, and I'm getting mail, so I'm like, it worked. But it's not, the, not what I need. I'm getting people that are more attracted to the idea of having a guy in prison. They want to do that until they realize that you can't sustain that long. Then I get a letter that's totally different than all the ones I had gotten up to that point. Hello, Gilbert. I saw your profile on writerprisoner.com, and for some reason, I kept coming back to your post. For some reason, your words just tucked at my heart. Maybe it was God telling me that you have a big heart and there's so much there to hear and to learn. I can tell that the person that wrote that letter didn't have a lot of experience writing to people in prison. She was just like, hi, I have a cat. His name is Desi, and here's a picture of my cat. This girl, she's just sitting on a couch in the living room and taking these silly pictures. She's a white girl, and I'm like, okay, never been with a white girl. But uh, I liked the letter. I wrote her back and told her that. I was sat in the parking lot of the 
post office and read his letter. I couldn't wait till I got home. <laughs> I started getting letters every day by her. Like every day the mailman's coming, bail, bail, bail. And I'm like, holy, these are like 17 page letters front and back. Different color pens. The second letter was, I was so right in looking forward to your letter because once I read it, I was floored. You do seem to have a passion for the youth and I commend you for that. I love that you're so passionate about what you do. I could tell that she took a serious interest in me and her approach was a lot different than what I was used to. I never asked him about his crime. I figured if he wanted to let me know, he would tell me. I didn't write just to go, oh, he's this bad boy or whatever. I didn't want that. And, tr and truthfully, it's kind of weird, but I was looking at those pen pals that were life sentences that probably weren't getting out. And then I was like, <laughs> maybe this girl's lying to me, got a bunch of kids, all kind of different kids, daddies. Who knows, visiting all kind of different guys, been writing guys in prison, and she's learned to cover it all up and just got me food. Or she's not the person in the picture and somebody else may be writing these letters. So I'm like, mom, I met this girl, and I kind of like gauge my mom. Oh, who is she? Her name is Rebecca. He even told his daughter Marlena about this woman. But while his new friendship lifted his spirits, the news from home about his brother Manny wasn't good. My family, my mom, they're confronting him like, hey, this ain't you. Like, you have a family that cares about you. And he's in denial. He don't see it. He's barricading the house when my family's in there. He's accusing them of calling the police and having them under surveillance. He's very paranoid. He won't leave nowhere without a weapon, whether it's a gun or a knife or something. All the affection is gone. My nieces are telling me like, you need to talk to uncle or something wrong. And they kept putting him in programs. But he leaves. He said they don't understand. That's all he used to tell me. Nobody understands. Nobody understands me. I'm a certified drug and alcohol counselor training, you know, co-occurring disorders, mental health, and I went to school for it. You know, I worked in the program for 13 years straight. I know what's going on. I, I see it. I hear it. But miles away, you know, I can't do nothing. He was staying with my grandma for a while at my grandma's house. My daughter was living there and man, they got really close. She listened to him. He was scared. He, he didn't know what to do. I would talk to him on the phone and I remember him always telling me like, I had dreams about you. I, 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 you're coming home. People we knew that grew up like us, 
they were they had life sentences. They were coming home, and he was like, I, I, "You're coming home, man. I see you. Like you pulled up in a car, and I was at a bus stop." And I was like, "Just wait, man. Don't get locked up." Cause I thought I could help him, but I couldn't protect him. He needs mental health help. Well, my brother, he denied that anything was wrong with him. He won't take medication. And I get it because in prison, you can't take mental health medication. It's a policy of the gang structure. And even in our culture, we don't go to the psych doctor and get medication to solve the problems in our home. Unfortunately, my brother never got the help he needed. The only reason he would agree to go to the drug program was because it was either that or go back to prison. And he said, I'm never going back. Never. He hated it. And I think that was his cry for help. In our next episode, we'll meet Rebecca and learn more about what happens to Gilbert's brother. This episode was co-produced by Mara Reynolds and Gilbert Bayo. You can check out all our episodes and show notes at grayareapodcast.com, and that's gray with an A. And don't forget to check out Season 1, where you can hear six stories of justice and redemption. There's an amazing story of forgiveness called Cheryl. The music for this episode is by Nuisance and Ketza, Thanks again to the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive. Details are on our website. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhume.org. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is Season 2 After Life. <laughs>